Well, good morning, Northbrook. For those of you who don't know me, I say shame on you. This is my third time speaking now since last summer, so if you're seeing me for the first time, then you need to give some serious thought to your church attendance. My name is uh, Paul Kepis, and I'm one of the elders here at Northbrook. Today it's my privilege to open up the word with you to the book of John in chapter 19. This is a chapter that deals with the crucifixion of Jesus, the event, of course, upon which all Christianity rests. But I have a confession to make. When I was first asked to speak on this chapter, I was a bit deflated. The truth is, most of us know this story really well. We read it every Easter, and Pastor Mike always does such a good job expositing the verses Even my wife, Monica, when I told her what I was speaking on, she asked, can you tell him no? (laughs) But the Lord has humbled me again. I don't know if this sounds familiar to any of you, but time and time again, I find myself worrying about something only for the Lord to come through and deliver. Maybe just to remind me that I can trust him. And then I find myself humbled and embarrassed. And the same thing happened here. As I started working on my message, my problem actually became the reverse. I found there was so much that I wanted to say. For example, I was excited to share with you all about how this was all done to establish the new covenant, about how the old covenant was never intended to save us. Animal sacrifices could only temporarily pay for sins. And how Jesus would become the permanent sacrifice that assures our salvation once and for all. I was excited to talk to you about how this was God's plan from the beginning. About how by some counts there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of Christ. Prophecies like Psalm 22.16 which says, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This was written by King David around 900 B.C. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. I was also excited to get into the historical and archaeological arguments to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is fascinating stuff. The Quran, for example, Islam's holy book, says that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that it only appeared so, that he was actually taken down while still alive. And that then explains why over 500 people saw him over the next 40 days. I wanted to talk about how why women found him missing from the tomb, given that they were not considered to be reliable witnesses in those days. Or how about how skeptics uh, try to explain and explain away the resurrection by positing all kinds of theories. There's a mass hallucination theory, a swoon theory, a stolen body theory. There's even a theory that the dogs ate the body. You name it. And there are so many interesting theories out there that want to knock Christianity out. And even more interesting is how those theories crumble under the weight of the facts. But I am a knucklehead because my problem is always time. And instead of being fearful of not anything new to say to you this morning, it turned out to be the opposite. I would have needed a summer series called John 19 to accomplish everything I had set out to do. So what I would like to do today is to talk to you about what is most on my heart. I would like to begin with the what. 
What happened in John 19? And use history in the text to establish that foundation. This will be familiar to many of you, but then we're going to go on a fascinating journey into the why questions and the ramifications that ensue. We all know the Sunday school answer to the why question. I'm not talking about that. Jesus died to forgive our sins and offer everlasting life. Great, but that just kicks the can to more questions, right? Why? Why does that forgive my sins and offer everlasting life? Why did he have to die? Why couldn't someone else die? Why did anyone have to die? And if death was necessary, why did it have to be so gruesome? And if God could do anything, did it really have to be this way? Couldn't the God of the universe had done something else? I'm excited to share this message that the Lord has put on my heart. Would you bow with me as we open in a word of prayer? God, I thank you for this day that you have made. I thank you for each person here in this room and online, Lord, that we can gather together in your name. I pray that we would hear from you today, O Lord. I pray that anything from me alone would be quickly forgotten but anything that is of you, Lord, would remain and stir within us. Word of God, speak. Open our hearts and minds to receive fresh revelation. We give you this time now as an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. The crucifixion took place around 33 AD. Um, At that time, Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee. We hear a lot about Herod in the Bible, but it's not always referring to the same Herod. The Herod when Jesus was born, for example, was his dad, Herod the Great. And remember that sweetheart guy, right? Ordered all the little boys under two to be killed. Maybe Herod the Great, not so great after all. But now his son was handed the reins. All the while, Israel was under the occupation of Roman rule. And Rome had installed one of its bigwigs, Pontius Pilate, as the prefect of Judea. He governed from about 26 to 36 AD. Pilate was a big deal. He was personally appointed by Tiberius Caesar. And even though Israel had been conquered by Rome, Herod and Pilate actually had an amicable relationship. And that's because Pilate was very sharp and Herod was found favor with Rome, and they realized that together there would be strength in that relationship. But Pilate was finding himself in a growing mess. This Jesus guy had been causing all kinds of headaches for the Jewish elite. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 19, when the chief priests had just turned Jesus over to Pilate and demanded that he be executed. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. 
When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Let me stop here for a second. Pontius Pilate is not a guy who gets afraid. He comes from a war tribe called the Samnites. He used to be a knight with them. They rode around in the southern mountains of Italy. It's where a lot of gladiators came from. Not to mention he had the full force of the Roman Empire behind him. And he's shaking in his boots. And many commentators suggest the reason why Pilate is so afraid is because he just couldn't fully shake that haunting question from his mind. What if he really is God? Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And let me stop here again. Pilate's in a tough place. He's got this cushy gig, and he doesn't want Judea to blow up on his watch. But the Jewish leaders are putting on a full court press to crucify him. And they had some sway, too. They'd been writing to Emperor Tiberius, complaining about Pilate and his heavy-handed rule. Pilate knew that an insurrection here could cost him his job, or maybe even his life. Verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate finally gives up. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side and with Jesus between them, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate only had so much patience. The Jews were complaining that the sign might give someone the wrong idea and think it were true. But don't miss the irony of their complaint. The sign actually was true. Down to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing, all, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work was now complete. 
And Jesus becomes the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. And what a sacrifice it was. There's never been anything like it in all of human history. If you think about it, none of the four gospel writers really get into much of the gory details of the crucifixion. It was unimaginably painful. Have you ever been in a lot of pain? The word excruciate comes from the Latin word excruciato, which means out of the cross. The next time you've got an excruciating headache, you're literally referring to the pain from crucifixion. And not only was it just a cruel manner of death, but it was dehumanizing and humiliating. They stripped you of all your clothing. The artists and sculptures are just being modest. And you weren't high up in the air. Your feet were usually a few inches from the ground so close to being able to stand and to get some relief, yet so far away. And it was also done so that people can hit you and spit on you while you just hung there. Marcus Tullius Cicero, one of the great statesmen of the Roman Republic, he said this about it. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To crucify him is what? There is no word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. That's what Cicero said. To crucify him is what? There aren't even words for this level of torture. It was so cruel that it couldn't be done to a Roman citizen. This was so brutal and unimaginable that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus did that for you. Please don't miss this. Please let this sink in. He didn't do this to save mankind or he didn't do this uh, for, for all on the earth. He did this. Don't cheapen it like that and make it abstract. He did this literally for you and for me and for you, Tara, and for you, Grace you, Tracy. As I mentioned earlier, this then brings up so many questions. Why does that save me? Why did it have to be like that? Couldn't there be another way? Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. The ramifications of these answers will impact the way you live your very lives. Some of it's going to get a bit heady, so I ask you to please put your thinking caps on. It's also going to get a bit uncomfortable for a while. I ask that you please bear with me and hear me through the end. Let me start with a rhetorical question. If there could have been another way, wouldn't God have chosen it? If it were your son and there was any other way, Jesus died a horrific death on the cross because there was no other way. What do I mean by that? God is a morally perfect being. 
His standard is righteousness. He has a moral hatred for anything that breaks his law. I know the H word isn't very popular in culture these days, especially when we talk about God. But God is not just a God who loves. God hates too. We don't get a say in the matter. We can look at many verses here, such as Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Or Psalm 11.5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. And there are a lot of thinkers and a lot of churches out there these days that are bowing to culture and preaching a watered-down gospel of only love. I thank God that Northbrook Church is a church that is committed to standing on the truth of God's word, come what may. Theologian Richard Niebuhr famously described the watered-down gospel as this. He says that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We don't like that sin and judgment stuff anymore. All you need is love, and love is all you need. So the song goes, right? The problem with the watered-down gospel, besides completely contradicting Scripture and producing a lot of lukewarm Christians, is that the cross wouldn't even make sense then, right? Think about it. How could the cross even be necessary Everything's good. Everybody's good. All actions are good. Who's hungry? Friends, without a clear understanding of sin and God's hatred for sin, the character of God becomes bent towards humanism, where man becomes the measure of all things. Love is just pure affirmation. And so everything becomes permissible. And God then is just another relationship who helps us with our problems. But God is more than only love. He is a God who hates sin. And don't just think of sin as simply wrongdoing. That doesn't put any relevance on it. It's not about being naughty. It's much deeper than that. It's the failure to be genuinely human to live out all the possibilities that God has for your life. John Wesley was a famous theologian evangelist in the 18th century. His mother, Susanna, she gave one of the best definitions of sin I ever heard. She said, whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. We all know the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. What about too much social media? Does that ever impair your tenderness of your conscience, obscure your sense of God? Too much video games, politics, sports? 
And God hates sin for the simple but beautiful reason that he hates being separated from us. Isaiah 59.2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Is anyone feeling cut off from God right now? I know I do sometimes. I was actually preparing some of these very words while at the same time actually dealing with some conflict with my wife and my children. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. And this turning away is nothing new. It's throughout Scripture and goes all the way back to the garden, right? Remember that it was sin that actually caused Adam and Eve to separate and hide from God. Isn't that hilarious, by the way? Did Adam and Eve really think they could win a game of hide-and-seek with the author of the universe by hiding behind a shrub? How about that one over there, Eve? It looks nice and thick. And I love how God is the God of all things, including humor. And they're crouching and hiding, and he's playing along, and he says, Where are you? (laughs) God hates sin. And we've all fallen short. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's because since the fall in the garden, the desire to be God, otherwise known as selfishness, has been wired into our hearts. I don't have to look any farther than my own family to see this. I think we've got a picture of them. There they are. The Kepis Five. There's my wife, Monica. Our son, Will. Daughter Anna there on the right and Grace, of course, on the left. Will's first words when he uh, started speaking was Papa. And Anna then came along and her first words were no. No. Mine. Stop. Gimme. I mean, isn't that all of our nature, really? And by the way, don't take Will off the hook. When he was about six years old, we went outside to ride his bike, only to realize his bike wasn't there. Someone had stolen it. And so we all just stood there in silence. And so you could imagine our surprise when Will finally spoke up and said that he wanted to pray for the man that stole his bike. And Monica and I were as proud as only parents could be as we sort of shared a smile and nod as we bowed our heads. God will begin. Please help that man. Please help that man that stole my bike die. <laughs> we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Every one of us sins and falls short of the glory of God. And the bad news with that, of course, is that all sin deserves punishment for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. These aren't things we get to debate. And fine, you might say, the wages of sin is death, but God is full of grace and mercy, so we're all set, right? Not so fast. He's also a holy and just God, and that's a problem. Please tighten those thinking caps I asked you to put on earlier. God can't do everything. What did he just say? Did he really say? I could see Dan running around backstage right now getting a big shepherd's crook to yank me off. Bear with me. God can't do everything. He can't do something that's mutually exclusive. God can't make a square circle 
Or how about this? God can't make a rock so big that even he can't lift it. It's the exact same thing with justice and mercy. They're at irreconcilable odds with each other. Justice is getting what is due. Mercy is overlooking what is due. You cannot have justice without compromising mercy. And you cannot have mercy without compromising justice. Somebody's got to pay. I was listening to a father whose young son had been disobedient. And the punishment for that was to go upstairs without supper. And the father said, Son, you know how much I love you, right? And how I only want good things for you. And the son looked down and said, I know, Dad. But I can't be a good dad if I just look the other way and pretend this never happened. I know, Dad. But then the dad said, son, I'm going to take this in from you tonight. I'm going to go upstairs without supper so you could eat and be with the family. And the father walked upstairs and missed dinner. And this is where all of this becomes the good news. The word gospel literally means good news. God does the most loving, unthinkable, incredible thing and pays the penalty himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Romans 3.23-26, through 26, Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And so why did Jesus have to die? Because our God is both a just and merciful God. And this was the only way, the only way that he could be perfectly merciful and loving while maintaining his character. He is infinitely holy. And so any sin then is an infinite sacrifice, an infinite offense which requires an infinite sacrifice. And since Jesus is God, it had to be him. Only his death could be an infinite sacrifice. And so the more we understand God's sacrifice, the more we understand his justice and mercy. And the more we understand his justice and mercy, the more we understand the unimaginable love he has for you and for me. I don't know where you are right now, but if this is sinking in, your heart is beating faster. Jesus loves you. Do we fully get that sometimes? You are perfectly loved and completely loved by Jesus. John writes in 1513, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Why? 
because the ultimate expression of love is to give of oneself for the sake of another. It's when you see others the way God sees them, with intrinsic value, not just when someone serves your purposes. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle of the book is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Talk about countercultural especially these days. What if marriage is about the privilege of being able to have the chance to being like Jesus? My dad's parents, Anna and Joseph, immigrated from Hungary during World War II, and they lived in Niles, Illinois. They're both with the Lord now. But I remember when it was their 60th wedding anniversary. You can imagine what they've been through. And I went over to be with them. And I said, Oma, 60 years with Opa, can you believe it? And all of them good ones, right? And her eyes narrowed and she put up two fingers and said, Only two, Pauli, only two good years. And Grandpa's in the background kind of nodding in agreement, you know, that there was about two good years. But you know what? They taught me one of the most incredible things I've ever learned in my life. And I honor them every time I practice it. They taught me that love is an action, not an emotion. It's a choice we get to make, not a feeling we react to. It's giving of ourselves for the sake of another. Love cannot exist without giving. Last week, Pastor Mike talked about this. He talked about Jesus fulfilling his mission throughout the Gospel of John and said that loving God and loving our neighbor is our greatest calling as Christians. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Luke ten twenty seven. That's our family's life verse, by the way. We've shortened it down to love God, love people. Not just when we're able. We're always able. Not just when there's something in it for us. So here's the question. What will you do about what you believe? What will you do about what you believe? For Mother Teresa, she answered it this way. Spread love everywhere you go. First of all, in your own home. Give love to your children, to your wife or husband, to a next-door neighbor. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face. Kindness in your eyes. Kindness in your smile. Kindness in your warm greeting. That's the transforming love that Jesus has for you and for me. Do you know him? Has he felt far away? 
you can come to him right now. You can make that choice. He'll answer your prayers. I'm not saying he'll answer everything we pray for because if we're honest, we probably shouldn't get everything we pray for. Tim Keller says that God will either answer your prayer or he'll answer the prayer that you would have prayed if you knew everything he does. Whatever hurt you're going through right now, God has never hurt you. Whatever sin you may be living in right now, God has never sinned about about you or against you. Justice, love, mercy, forgiveness. There's only one place in all of human history where these four things converged. 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary on the cross. Jesus. Live for his sake. Love for his sake. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your son to die on a cross. You have been so good to us and you have done so much for us. And we're sorry that we can't even make it through a day without stumbling to return that love. Help us, Lord, to draw ever closer to you and to live for your sake. I pray that you would overwhelm us with a renewed passion for our greatest calling, to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.